0: that you're all awake here. I do appreciate the opportunity uh, that Pastor Matt gave me to continue his uh, study of Hebrews. So we're going to be looking at the Hebrews passage that you just read for us. Uh, and it's a it's a really fascinating passage. It's kind of a bad news, good news passage. So we're going to be looking at, at those dynamics. Uh, I'm not sure about you, but in the last... Uh, About a week or more ago, when the Pope was here, I was really captivated by his visit. I I was just fascinated in listening to the kinds of things that he had to say. I was intrigued by what he wanted to say and to whom he wanted to say it, and he chose that very, very carefully. And I was fascinated by the thousands that seemed to travel very long distances to come to hear him, uh, to, to hang on his words, to listen with a sense of anticipation. Uh, with ears open, with hearts alert, uh, just ready to be inspired. And I was even quite heartened by some of the things that he had to say in terms of uh, two people, particularly people in power, about how we treat the poor. What do we do with the oppressed, the refugees, the imprisoned, Um, even down to our overstressed earth? And yet, if we were to have taken a snapshot the very next Sunday of all of the churches around our country, I'm not sure many of those churches would have had buses lined up at the door or thousands of people waiting to get into their uh, pews or thousands of people waiting with anxious heart, just with bated breath. Now, don't get me wrong. I understand that having the Pope here is a... You know, It doesn't happen very often, so that in itself is, is cause for excitement. But it struck me as I was thinking about that, that we have the very same words of God to proclaim. We have the same message. We have the same Lord to talk about. And yet sometimes it's easy for us to, in some ways, to become complacent about that. And maybe not pay as much attention uh, as perhaps uh, you know you would see in a situation of of the Pope coming to town. Well, I think today's passage in Hebrew says a little bit about this. So I want to kind of take off on this. The first verse that uh, Mindy read for us is a very um, it's a bold verse, and so hear that again. Indeed, <clears throat> the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword. In the biblical text, we encounter God in many, many ways. We can, by reading the text, we can feel the heartbeat of God. We can hear of God's actions. We read of the stories about God's work. We know that God's work was powerful, so powerful that when God spoke, creation exploded into existence. We know that when God spoke, people were liberated. We know that when God spoke, major changes occurred. But we know that our record of God speaking is certainly not just confined uh, to the Old Testament, because we know that the Word became flesh in the person of the Son. And we know that Jesus gives to us the words of God and reveals God's heart so that we can see God in even more fuller uh, perspective. So the Word of God is living and active. That's not a past tense. The Word of God is living. God not only spoke in the past, but God continues to speak into our lives today. How? Through the Holy Spirit? the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit, in our prayer lives, in our reading of the scriptures, through our lives together as the community of faith, God continues to speak into our lives. It's not just kind of a past tense thing. But perhaps it's too easy in our word-saturated culture to miss God's word, to us, with all of the distractions that we have around us, perhaps it's easy for that to happen. Brennan Manning <coughs> made this statement, if our faith is alive and luminous we will be alert to the moments, the events and the occasions when the power of the resurrection is brought to bear on our lives. Self-absorbed and inattentive we fail to notice the subtle ways in which Jesus is snagging our attention. So why does Jesus need to snag our attention? What do we need to hear? What's the news that we need to hear for us today? So let me go back and read the 12th and 13th verses. This is what it says. Indeed, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, Piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow, it is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And before him no creature is hidden, but all are naked and laid bare to the eyes of the one to whom we must render an account. That's a very daunting passage, if you leave it right there because we realize that this word who has, which has power and is living, can see right through to us. This living, active power, piercing, dynamic, penetrating word looks deep into our lives. So we're confronted with the reality of our own sin, the reality of our own inadequacies we realize in all humility that we're faced with the reality that our hope isn't based on our ability to conceal things or our ability to hide from God. But thankfully, the living word that discerns and sees goes beyond all those words of dread and despair and actually catapults us into the possibility of healing, reconciliation, and transformation. And that's where the next part of the passage comes in. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The faith that we profess, the confidence that we can experience is rooted in the triumphant exaltation of the risen Lord. It is not based on a confidence of our own not based on the fact that all of a sudden now we are in and of ourselves bold. It is based on our risen Lord. Jesus, as our great high priest, can fully know us because he has gone through all the things that we have gone through without succumbing to all the temptations around him. While fully human and fully divine, Jesus even cried out at times for help from his Father. Christ understands from the inside out what we go through every day. Pastor Matt reminded us last week that the holy became flesh so that we could become holy. The whole became broken so that we could experience wholeness. And what's more... Our resurrected Lord is not a distant, inaccessible Lord. We think about that very often. Too many times we get lost in thinking of the resurrection simply as an event in the past. We can celebrate Easter, and then we can let it slip from our conscious awareness. In fact, sometimes the the Sundays after Easter were called low Sundays, because sort of meant that the attendance was really low after the build-up to Easter. Maybe not unlike what we have seen the last couple of weeks with uh, the visit of the Pope. We can let the power of the events slip from our minds and it becomes easy, so, so easy to be inattentive and to take this good news for granted. Now, sometimes we can kind of relegate the resurrection to the past, but then there are other times when people focus only on a future hope. Christ will come again. That is our assurance. But for some, we can put all of our focus on the future. We don't have to worry about today. That's out in the future sometime. But the startling truth is that Christ's presence is a present reality. Christ's presence is a present reality. Brennan Manning in Abbott's Child has suggested this. For me, the most radical demand of Christian faith lies in summoning the courage to say yes to the present risenness of Christ. The gospel proclaims a hidden power in the world, the living presence of the risen Christ. The Jesus who walked the roads of Judea and Galilee is the one who stands beside us. The Christ of history is the Christ of faith. Manning, in his book, also relays the story of G.K. Chesterton, who was a, um, an important 20th century writer, thinker, journalist. And he relays the story at one time uh, after Chesterton had become a Christian, He was approached by a newspaper reporter on a London street. The reporter said, Sir, I understand that you recently became a Christian. May I ask you one question? Certainly, replied Chesterton. If the risen Christ suddenly appeared at this very moment and stood behind you, what would you do? Chesterton looked the reporter squarely in the eye and said, He is the present reality of our risen Lord. Relegating the resurrection to the past or pushing it out to some future hope seems safer. Either way might not challenge our routines, our conversations, our life choices, or the ways we respond to each other. But acknowledging the power of the risen Lord right now, right here, is truly remarkable. It is to this Jesus, the risen Lord, that we are called to approach with boldness. Not because we're bold in and of ourselves, because this is the Christ that we are called to approach. And what do we approach for? To receive mercy and grace. In the cross we see God's justice and love reconciled. And this is a thought that I've been thinking about in recent days. And I've encountered it in a number of conversations. One with Montague and also recently in the words of Pope Benedict in a two thousand and five encyclical. So I Montague was in the first service, so I told told him that I don't often put Montague's name with the Pope in the same <laughs> sentence, but but it happened, so you know <laughs> we'll leave it at that. But here are these words from Pope Benedict in 2005. God's passionate love for his people, for humanity, is at the same time a forgiving love. It is so great that it turns God against himself, his love against his justice. Here Christians can see a dim prefigurement of the mystery of the cross. So great is God's love for man that by becoming man, He follows him even into death and so reconciles justice and love. What good news is this? God's justice and God's love meet at the cross where we experience mercy and grace. And we are called to come boldly as one who is thoroughly known, as it describes in those first passages but not only thoroughly known, but thoroughly loved and set free to be transformed and called to participate in the kingdom of God. Kathleen Norris, in her book Amazing Grace, has this to say. Even when we try to run away from our troubles, as Jacob did, God will find us and bless us. Even when we feel most alone, unsure if we will survive the night, God will find a way to let us know that he is with us in this place, wherever we are, however far we think we've run. And maybe that's one reason we worship, to respond to praise. We praise God not to celebrate our own faith, but to give thanks for the faith God has in us to let ourselves look at God, and let God look back at us, and to laugh, and sing, and be delighted, because God has called us his own. A number of years ago, um, Calvin Miller wrote a a trilogy to try to uh, give another way of describing the work of of Christ on Earth. Um, And he uses, um, he has a number of vignettes. of sets it in a medieval setting, Um, but he uses the term the singer to represent Jesus and the world hater to represent Satan. And this uh, little vignette is the story of Christ's interaction with a woman of the street. He met a woman in the street. She leaned against an open door and sang through her half parted lips, a song he could barely hear. He knew her friendship was for hire, and she was without a doubt a study in desire. Her hair fell free around her shoulders, and intrigue played upon her lips. Are you betrothed, she asked. No, only loved, he answered. And do you pay for love? No, he said, but I owe it everything. You, you're alone. Can I sell you but an hour of friendship? Deaf to her surface proposition, he said, Tell me of the song that you were singing as I came upon you. Where did you learn it? His question troubled her, and at length she said, The first night that I ever sold myself, I learned it from a tall, impressive man. And did he play a silver pipe, the singer asked. He seemed surprised. Do you know the man who bought me first? Yes, Not long ago, in fact, he did his best to teach me that same song. I can't understand, she said. I sell friendship and you, your melody. Why would he teach us both the same song? The singer pitied her, and he knew that the world hater had a way of making every victim feel as though he were the only person who could sing his song. He only has one song, the singer said. He therefore teaches it to everyone. It is a song of hate. No, no, she said. It's a love song. The first night that he held me close, he sang it tenderly to me, and so in every way he owned me while he sang to me of love. And have you seen him since? No, not him, but a never-ending line of men with his desires. So it was no song of love. Tell me, did he also say that someday in the merchandising of your soul you would find someone who would not simply leave the fee upon the stand but rather take you home to care for you and cherish you? Again, she seemed surprised. Those were indeed his very words. How can you know them? And have you found the one he promised? No, not yet. And how long have you peddled your friendship? Some 20 years are gone since first I learned the song that you inquired about. singer felt a burst of pity. We sometimes give ourselves to hate and masquerade and only think it love. And all our lives we sing the song we thought was right. Listen while I sing for you a song of love. He began the melody so vital to the dying people around him, in the beginning was the song of love. She listened and knew for the first time she was hearing all of love there was. Her eyes were filled and when he finished, she sobbed and sobbed in shame. Forgive me, for I am sinful and undone for singing weary years of all the wrong words. The singer touched her shoulder and told her of the joy that lay ahead if she could learn the music he had sung. He left her in the street and walked away, and as he left, he heard her singing his new song. And when he turned to wave the final time, he saw her shaking her head to a friendship fire. She would not take his money. And from his little distance, the singer heard her use his very words. Are you betrothed? The buyer asked. No, only loved, she answered. And do you pay for love? No, but I owe it everything. This is the abundant grace. This is the abundant mercy that redeems, restores, loves, and transforms. Every week when we pray the Lord's Prayer and we come to that phrase, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, do we ever think about how dangerous that prayer really is? How radical that prayer is? It declares our citizenship in the kingdom of God. It links our lives with the body of Christ. The Word of God is living and active when we see clearly the areas in our lives that we need the touch of the risen Lord. The Word of God is living and active when we respond to the invitation to come boldly with confidence to receive grace and mercy. The Word of God is living and active when the kingdom of God has broken into our community of faith to transform, empower, and draw others to this experience so that they, too, can know the word of God as living and active in their lives. This is the good news of the risen Lord.